0: To our podcast ADHD is over. I am so glad you're here and I want to start off this episode with what they call a shout out. I just want you to know the listener that you've helped us get up to 1500 listens a week and I remember when I used to have like 12, 15, 20 and I was so excited And it kept growing very slowly, but I'm so, 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 so much more excited now with so many more listeners in so many more countries and cities. And look, I would do this for one person, one mother with a child. If I can change one life, one family, I will keep doing this. But to see up to 1500, I think at some point it was 1600 with some cross promotion that uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton did and other, uh, uh, you know, podcast guests. But we're at an average now of 1200 a week. And that's just amazing to me. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I I just, words can't explain how grateful I am. Um, I just wanna do a shout out to Some countries and cities. Um, for some reason, my computer's giving me a hard time here. Let's see. Um, I just want to say, and here, here are the, the, the top countries, uh, in the last seven days, uh, United States, of course, we have had many, 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 many listens, the United States leads, Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, Germany, Sweden, And the russian federation there are more countries there i just it won't let me scroll down today i don't know why come on computer help me out here japan is number eight okay here we go so let me start again thank you united states canada australia united kingdom germany sweden russian federation japan Denmark, Netherlands, Pakistan, Belgium, Singapore, Spain, Ireland, Switzerland, Mexico, Czech Republic, Israel, Islamic Republic of Iran, and Serbia. I have goosebumps. Thank you, thank you so much. And just to go into a few of the top cities recently, Downingtown, Pennsylvania. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, for digging in. Chicago, Council Bluffs in Iowa, Toronto, Canada, Lorraine, Ohio, Lakewood, Ohio, San Diego, California, Ottawa, Canada, McKay, Australia, Calgary, Canada. And then there's Ojai, California, my hometown, yay. Melbourne, Australia, Passaic. New Jersey, Ashburn, uh, that's Virginia, Perth, Richmond, Virginia, Portland, Oregon, Culver City, California, Berlin, Germany, Malmo, Sweden, Plano, Texas, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Munich, Westchester, Pennsylvania, Moscow, King, North Carolina, Quebec canada sydney australia los angeles saint Austell, united kingdom atlanta georgia seven oaks united kingdom graestad denmark adelaide australia ruther Heath, united kingdom sorry if i mispronounced it cincinnati ohio illyria ohio london bridgewater united kingdom silver city uh, new mexico curtis town hawaii lincoln city oregon saint george utah barcelona spain islamabad pakistan farmington minnesota portsmouth uh, virginia Conway, United Kingdom, Lower Longley, Australia and Claremont, New Hampshire, United States. Wow. Those are some of the top cities that have been listening to this podcast or people from those cities. I should say, you are the people. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just wanted to start off this episode by saying thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing the message. Thank you for emailing us to those parents who've reached out to us to suggest a topic. Uh, We're a little backed up on that. So bear with us if you haven't yet heard an episode on your topic. Thank you for reaching out to us and telling us your story, your family story around ADHD. There's many of you that have signed up to be on the podcast. That's so awesome. We get to hear from mothers, fathers with children with ADHD and so forth. Not just experts, not just me ranting, not just an interview, not just me reading a study, but actual parents right on the court where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. So thank you all. Please keep emailing us. And if you have questions, for specific experts or topics, please let us know. Thank you. I will announce that in February, we have the pleasure to interview Dr. Stephen V. Farone. if I'm saying this right, PhD. He is at the Institute for Human Performance, IHP in Syracuse, New York. He's a distinguished professor and vice chair of research of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, professor of neuroscience, graduate program, professor of neuroscience and physiology. He is somebody who's been studying ADHD for a long time. He's also been leading um, the 2021, although it was drafted in 20, but the World Federation of ADHD International Consensus Statement that came out in 2021, this year, very recently, and it's a controversial consensus. There are the the rebuttals of the, the early consensus by Barclay, and this is led by Stephen V. Farrione. This is the new consensus to basically again, uh, cement the fact that they believe that ADHD is a real disorder. Um, there are many experts that have signed on and many studies that were cited, and I'm excited to just ask him some questions from the point of view of a parent, of a dad on a mission, a researcher to know what does the other, other side really think in regards to certain questions that we, the parents call us skeptic, call us digging deeper, call us acknowledging that there's an incomplete and one-sided narrative, but we want some answers. And I'm going to try to have Dr. Farron be as, you know, speaking in as, as much of a layman sort of uh, language that he can, because it does us no good if our experts just cite studies and numbers and words and other experts and so forth, right? We need to be able to wrap our heads around the scientific and medical terms, and that's gonna be my goal. So that's coming uh, towards the end of February. So if you have any questions for Dr. Farron, and I'm gonna put a link to his bio and the consensus study in this episode as well, feel free to kind of browse through if you have the time and energy. If not, just email us, the questions that you would like to like for me to present in that episode. Yay. Okay. Let's kick it off here. Um, let's see. So I came across an article by Jonathan Leo, and this is, first of all, I just want to thank you, uh, Sue. This is one of my most powerful allies on this journey. She is a parent. She is a researcher, an activist, a powerful mother, wife, super force to be reckoned with. Um, Tinkerbell with a blowtorch, as she's been named. And I just want to thank you personally here on the air for always, you know, directing me to interesting studies, interesting people, interesting books. And so today I'm going to read an article that was published in 2000 in the skeptic magazine and i will try to get a hold of a pdf online that i can link to i haven't been successful in doing so but if for some reason the link is not in the show notes uh just come back to the same episode and look for the show notes to be updated right so because i want to make sure you can get a hold of that um so let's see where do we start here i just want to uh pull up one quick thing and I'm doing this on the go. This, this episode is the most, I don't know, I'm, I'm really excited. There's so many facts and so many details to this, this episode that I'm really going to try to keep it all together, keep it streamlined. Right. And so Jonathan Leo, the author of this, um, I'm just going to read you what Wikipedia says here, um, that, um. One second here. So, Jonathan Leo was a professor of anatomy at Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee. He's currently an associate professor of anatomy at the Alabama College of Osteopathic Medicine. He has published articles critical of chemical and biological theories of mental illness. He's the former editor in chief of Ethical Human Psychology and Psychiatry. With Sammy Timimi, who's been on our podcast already who was the, uh, the lead uh, person in the rebuttal of Barclay's um, consensus in 2002. Um, Sammy Tamimi with Sammy Tamimi, he also is the co-editor of the book Rethinking ADHD. And I'll link to that as well. So that's Jonathan Leo. This article is quite extensive, but I will say it is a fascinating article. And I'm gonna try to kind of brush through perhaps some of the information that may sound scientific and and crazy and too much to wrap your brain around. And I will try to slow down when the mic drops are in, right? So that you, the parent can really take away some powerful information. These are ultimately at, at times sound bites, but it's important when we talk to other parents or friends or experts that we can refer to some of these sound bites by people, as you've seen. Jonathan Leo is a distinguished professor, researcher, and has published many articles and books, you know, questioning, again, critical of chemical and biological theories of mental illness. Now, since we're all committed to helping our children, and I would hope that any expert around ADHD is committed to helping our children, it would make sense that we're critical of anything that sort of tries to be absolute, right? Sort of like the science is in, shut up like some of these consensus statements come across and are perceived by a lot of the experts on our side. You know, they're like, Hey, here's the thing, dear parents, dear human beings, something I've been meaning to state for a long time. And this applies to COVID and it applies to ADHD. And there's a very interesting parallel. Here's why. I have a burning question deep in the center of my chest. And I'm going to start this around ADHD because this episode is not about COVID, but you can sort of copy paste it onto that. And here's the question. How come if we're really interested in helping our children to thrive in life? Side note. How come there hasn't been and there is not to this day a well-balanced respectful, all inclusive town hall type of open and televised streamed live debate between the two sides on the ADHD research, each side given enough time over, you know, days to present their evidence in all areas such as genetics, chemical, biological theories, medication, behavioral theories, environmental influences, right? Trauma, stress, both sides presenting their best studies maturely and respectfully, constructively, because they're both there for the same goal, supposedly, both figuring out together where we stand on ADHD today, the cause, and I hate to use the word cure, but let's call it the cause and the cure, cause and treatment. How come that has not happened? I can't answer that for you. I can speculate. The only thing that has happened are these consensus that are thrown around. So one side will put up a consensus and say, this is it. The science is in, stop questioning it, stop being critical. Then the quote unquote critical side comes in and says, hold on. That's not what science is about. We need to keep asking the questions. If we truly say that we don't quite yet know the real cause or causes of ADHD, right? That is by the way, true. And I'll tell you why. And when I say true, you know, I take it with a grain of salt, which uh, agency or top top authority you believe, right? But in this case, I'm going to read you a statement. Here's the thing. and This is part of our um, ADHD uh, diagnosis survival guide that's coming out uh, uh, next week. We ask two questions in our survival guide first of all, what is ADHD? Now, the American Psychiatric Association and the CDC and the NIH all have a different theory, or I should say, have a different claim. The APA says ADHD is one of the most common mental disorders affecting 8.4% of American children. The CDC says ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood The NIH says ADHD is a neurobehavioral disorder that affects 3 to 5% of all American children. First of all, the NIH and the APA don't agree on the percentage. One says 8.4, the other one says 3.5. Okay. Now, again, they're labeling it as a mental disorder or neurodevelopmental disorder or neurobehavioral disorder. Now, here's the kicker, though. That is, what is ADHD? When we go to the question, what causes ADHD... The same experts say, APA, scientists have not yet identified the specific causes of ADHD. The CDC says the causes and risk factors for ADHD are unknown. The NIH says, finally, after years of clinical research and experience with ADHD, our knowledge about the cause or causes of ADHD remains largely speculative. So those are the top agencies saying when asked about the cause, not yet identified, unknown, and remains largely speculative. So that said, the top three agencies that we're supposed to trust on ADHD, for example, in this case, right, have not yet identified it, it's unknown to them, and it remains largely speculative. So when I hear that personally, to me, It's just odd that the same people would say the science is in and there shouldn't be any more critical debates. Well, excuse me, but if it's not yet identified and unknown and remains largely speculative, isn't that where we need to look? Don't we need to dig a little bit deeper? What then was surprising is the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, then on the same website, on their website, While they're saying we're still largely speculating, it seemed that the science though was in because they had a statement online that said children with ADHD have a higher adverse childhood experiences exposure. That's the ACE study, right? They're saying children with ADHD have a higher adverse childhood experiences exposure compared with children without ADHD. Then they go on to say there was a significant association between ACE score, ADHD, and moderate to severe ADHD. Now, in my logical, fairly intelligent brain, I cannot compute those two statements side to side, where one says remains largely speculative, unknown, and on the other hand, there's a significant association between ACE score and ADHD. Okay, if there is a significant association, how come, The majority of our effort is not dedicated to digging deeper and being here comes critical of the association between trauma and ADHD. I just wanted to point that out when I read that someone like Jonathan Leo, who's written this article I'm about to read is remains critical of chemical and biological theories, critical. He's not denying them. He's not calling them lies. He remains critical. And so I'd like to now get into the article that is called attention deficit disorder. Subtitle is good science or good marketing. So here we go. In the 1960s, Americans discovered illegal mind altering drugs for themselves. In the 1990s, Americans discovered a legal mind altering drug for their children. Although it is illegal drugs that draw the attention of the media and law enforcement agencies over the past decade, there has been a meteoric rise in the number of children under the guidance of a physician taking mind-altering drugs. The drug Ritalin. This is at the time, just a reminder that this article was written in 2000. The drug was Ritalin. The most recent estimate is that somewhere between 3 to 5 million children in this country, in the U.S., are taking Ritalin or a similar type of drug. Furthermore, American children consume 90% of all the Ritalin produced worldwide, making this a unique aspect of American culture. Ritalin is the drug of choice for children who have been diagnosed with ADHD, it has now become acceptable to give children a drug to alter their personality and behavioral patterns in a specific situation, usually school. The acceptance of this practice, however, has more to do with marketing than science. In the past 10 years, millions of dollars have been spent by scientists to investigate the biological basis of ADHD. Likewise, At the same time, millions of dollars have been spent by the marketing departments of pharmaceutical companies to promote the use of drugs such as Ritalin. By comparing the success rate of the scientists on one hand and the marketing departments on the other, it is clear why medicating children has more to do with marketing than science. The scientific basis of ADHD is on shaky ground and very little progress has been made in the last decade. It is hard to pin down the ADHD experts on what they think is the most convincing scientific proof of this disorder. Instead of one very good study that proves their case, there are numerous marginal studies that individually have little significance. However, when these little pieces are piled high, it appears to some that significant understanding is at hand. The phrase, this is one of the most studied pediatric conditions, appears frequently in the ADHD literature, but the major scientific evidence for ADHD is that hyperactive children can be helped, at least in the short run, by taking Ritalin, a pill that increases a neurotransmitter called dopamine. So the argument goes, if we know that Ritalin both increases dopamine levels and subdues hyperactive children, then the original hyperactivity must have been due to a dearth of dopamine. This line of reasoning is flawed. We do not use a parallel argument to explain the effects of other drugs, such as an aspirin. Aspirin relieves headaches, but that doesn't mean that a shortage of aspirin caused the headache. ADHD may be one of the most extensively studied pediatric conditions, yet there is still no proof of any underlying neuropathology. In 1990, when... Um, he exa- examined all brains. Uh, let me just see here, make sure I have the right page. It seems, yeah, uh, yeah, so sorry. Um, ask a psychiatrist to explain ADHD and Ritalin, and he will most likely recite the diabetes analogy, which goes something like this. ADHD is like diabetes in that both are due to a shortage of a chemical in the body. Diabetics are short of insulin, a condition that causes their blood sugar level to increase. This condition is helped by administrating insulin, which brings the blood sugar level down. Makes sense, right? The child with ADHD has a shortage of dopamine, which leads to impulsive behavior. By administering Ritalin, we can increase the dopamine levels and normalize the child. So it goes the theory. The problem with this analogy is that while for diabetes, a blood test can be implemented to detect abnormal glucose levels... For ADHD, no such biological test exists to detect decreased dopamine levels. For diabetes, too, insulin can be administered, the blood test repeated, and the effect of the drug measured. We cannot measure the effect of Ritalin in this way. Recently, parents who have been concerned with Ritalin affecting their child's growth have withheld the drug on vacations and during summer holidays. This is even referred to as a drug holiday. Clearly, there is no room in the diabetes analogy for a drug holiday because diabetics cannot stop taking their insulin whenever they feel like it. And I love this line that Jonathan Leo adds here. Any scientist with a modicum of critical thinking skills can see that the diabetes analogy is not valid. But man, does it get used a lot. I still hear it a lot. Now, here's another one we often hear. He gets to this. Psychiatrists frequently use the diabetes analogy to explain any mental illness. The ADHD proponents also have their own unique analogy, eyeglasses. According to the National Institutes of Mental Health, parents and teachers can help children view their medication in a positive way. Compare the pills to eyeglasses. Explain that their medicine is simply a tool to help them focus and pay attention the problem with the eyeglass analogy is that comparing Ritalin to eyeglasses is like comparing a lightning bolt to a flashlight," says Jonathan Leo. Now check this out. A lot of parents have asked us in the past. Yeah, yeah, I know there's no you know medical test, biological test to really, you know, uh, uh, you know, really prove that ADHD is real. But what about brain scans? Okay, let's continue. Jonathan Leo. Um, Titles this section, Brain Scans or Scams. The holy grail for ADHD research is to find a diagnostic test that a physician could use to determine if a patient actually has ADHD. That's the holy grail. No one's gotten there yet. FYI. For years, scientists have sought a legitimate biological marker to lend credence to the ADHD diagnosis. The current trend is to use PET, positron emission tomography scans to compare the brains of ADHD children with the brains of normal children. Dr. Alan Zemetkin, a leader in the effort to show some biological abnormalities in the brain of ADHD children, is often cited in Ritalin advertising literature. He has conducted two major brain scan studies in which he compares ADHD patients to controls. The first study was in 1990 when he examined all brains. This study received considerable press attention because in the words of Zemetkin himself, Zemetkin et al. published a study showing for the first time definite and quantifiable central neurophysiological differences, that's the key word, between ADHD adults and normal adults. One problem with the Zemetkin study was that while there was an 8% difference in glucose metabolism, there was no difference in outcome on a continuous performance test. So it's very important here. Um, The study showed that there was an 8% difference in the glucose metabolism, the level of glucose, right? Metabolism in the brain. There was an 8% difference, and we get to that in a little bit, but there was no difference in outcome on a continuous performance test. So they all performed the same. The other and major problem is the Zemetkin study included both females and males, but when ADHD males are compared to control males, there's no significant difference. The only way to get a statistically significant difference is to group the males and females together. In a subsequent study, independent researchers analyzed Semetkin's data and compared the male controls to the female controls and found that there was a significant difference between normal males and normal females. Based on Semetkin's logic that a difference in metabolism leads to medication, then either the normal males or normal females should be medicated. Again, just because there's a difference does not mean there's a disease. Based on the success of his first studies, Zemetkin published a second in 1993 to compare ADHD adolescents to control adolescents. In this study, however, he found no differences in global brain metabolism. In a review article, Zemetkin discusses the results. Several reasons could have accounted for the overall lack of brain metabolism the difference between ADHD and normal teenagers. First, the adolescent control group was not as pure as the control group used in the adult study, because 63% of the normal adolescents had a first degree relative with ADHD in contrast to the absence of ADHD pathology in families of normal adults. Second, 75% of the adolescents with ADHD had been previously exposed to treatment with stimulants, compared to no history of stimulant treatment in the ADHD adults. Third, an age effect in the development of brain abnormalities in ADHD individuals cannot be ruled out. One of the possibilities that Zemetkin seems to ignore is that his findings actually show that there is no biological difference between ADHD and control brains. That's important. It is astonishing that he does not even consider this possibility, at least in print. Despite the negative findings of this second study, the ADHD marketing forces have taken the PET scan research and presented it to the general public as if there were evidence of a neurobiological disorder. CHAD, Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Disorder, is a national organization that promotes the concept that ADHD is a neurobiological disorder, and it has received close to a million dollars from the drug companies that manufacture Ritalin. This is by 2000. This is now 21 years later. Wonder if that figure has gone up substantially and we'll report on that soon. They use the brain scan picture in figure one to show that ADHD is a neurobiological disorder. Now, just so you know, I'm holding this figure one and I'll get there in a minute. and I'll explain that to you. It's a very simple comparison to the non-scientist. It seems as if the brain scan research has revealed some underlying biological deficit, but this is misleading. The advertisement could also be used to describe the difference between the sexes. And we'll get into that in a little bit. The brain scan literature is probably the best example of the very weak science, but the very strong marketing forces behind the push to medicate children. Compare two publications. If literature on ADHD is requested from the National Institute of Mental Health, they will send a pamphlet entitled Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. This pamphlet is clearly designed for parents who's considering putting their child on Ritalin. Under the causes of ADHD, there's the following statement. This was back in 2000. They are finding more and more evidence that ADHD does not stem from the home environment, but from biological causes. When you think about it, there's no clear relationship between home life and ADHD. Not all children from unstable or dysfunctional homes have ADHD. That's the National Institute of Mental Health. The ADHD marketing literature is filled with statements like this, but the ADHD professional literature is considerably more equivocating. In 1998, for example, there was a National Institute of Mental Health consensus conference on ADHD and its final report contained these cautionary statements. And you've heard me state this before. We don't have an independent valid test for ADHD. Further research is necessary to firmly establish ADHD as a brain disorder existing studies come to conflicting conclusions as to whether the use of psychostimulants increases or decreases the risk of abuse. And finally, after years of clinical research and experience with ADHD, our knowledge about the cause or causes of ADHD remain largely speculative. Sound familiar? Remain largely speculative. That's the National Institute of Health quote that's in our deck that will be released next week, remaining largely speculative. But On the same website, again, you've read it up there that I, what I just read to saying that they're finding that ADHD does not stem from the home environment, but from biological causes. And then the next paragraph, somewhere on the same page saying, we're still largely speculating. Interesting. How many parents who are considering putting their children on Ritalin or Ritalin like drugs have seen this paper, right? I suspect, and so did Jonathan Leo, the answer is close to zero. I never heard of it. I'd never dug dead deep. All right. He continues to say, show me the evidence. It's like Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. It wasn't Jerry Maguire. It was Cuba Gooding Jr. Anyway, show me the evidence. The superficiality of the scientific evidence for ADHD is most obvious in the writings of the ADHD experts themselves. As an example, consider Russell Barkley, and you've heard me Uh, talk about him before, he led the 2000 Consensus, pro-label, pro-medication, pro-disorder. As an example, consider Russell Barkley, who wrote a major review article in Scientific American entitled Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. One would think that a review article in such a highly regarded popular journal of science would present the most powerful data available, yet Barkley's evidence in support of a biological link to ADHD is minimal. In fact, the author admits, No one knows the direct and immediate causes of the difficulties experienced by children with ADHD, although advances in neurological imaging techniques and genetics promise to clarify this issue over the next five years. We are still waiting, writes Jonathan Leo. That was in 2000 and we are still waiting in 2021. Perhaps that is why again and again, the pro label, pro meds, pro disorder side continues. To publish these consensus, an attempt to through words on a paper solidify their, you know, or to make up for their lack of evidence. I don't know. Jonathan Leo continues Barclay's statement sums up both the science and the, philo- the philosophy of the ADHD movement and should be quoted on the front of every National Institute of Mental Health brochure describing ADHD, but it's not. Here's a bald, Admission that we do not understand the scientific basis for this so-called disease. It is also interesting that Barclay is one of the biggest proponents of Ritalin. His resolution to this paradox is to speculate that science will catch up with the drug. Dr. Peter Bregan, a doctor and author, and he was also on our podcast, wonderful man, I got to interview he does not believe in medicating children with Ritalin, and he's been accused by Barclay of violating the Hippocratic Oath. Now, the fact that a leader of the push to medicate children, Barclay, who admits we do not understand this disease, accuses a skeptical doctor of ethical impropriety, right? Dr. Bregan says more about the Ritalin movement than Barclay's review article. Now I wanna get into the brain scan image that, I, uh, that was mentioned earlier. This is very important for you parents because there are now these uh, uh, ADHD expert salesmen out there and the Amen Clinic is another one, Dr. Daniel Amen, who's written books on ADHD, Healing ADHD, I think is one of them. And I had the, I had the fortune to uh, interview his staff and be diagnosed by them and go to one of the clinics in Orange County lovely people. Um, But here's the thing. This is how it's presented to parents. These are the marketing materials. So there's two scans. On the left, we see a non-ADHD adult brain scan. On the right, there's an ADHD adult. The non-ADHD adult scan has a lot more activity. There's more colors. There's more areas that are lit up. The ADHD adult... The scan has less areas lit up, it's less colorful, it's less lit up. So just so you know the difference, since this is an audio medium, you can't see it. The non ADHD adult in the scan, they're trying to prove that there's more activity, right? There's more happening in the brain, the glucose levels, right? It's an indicator of activity and the brain seems to be, it seems more active than the ADHD adult. So here's what Jonathan Leo says. An example of the brain scan comparison used in marketing literature that allegedly proves that ADHD has a biological basis. This image was taken from a presentation made to teachers by an organization called, you've heard it before, Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Disorder, CHAD. The caption of the picture reads, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder is real. That's a powerful statement. Because these photos are supposed to prove it, right? The scans. The brain scan image by itself is a powerful yet simplistic image, which makes it a good marketing tool. Meaning if you look at a non-ADHD adult, more light, more colors, more activity, looks healthier on paper as a scan than the less uh, uh, bright, less colorful, less active ADHD adult brain scan. Unfortunately, the marketing brochures do not go into an in-depth analysis of the image. These two images show glucose levels, an indicator of activity in the brain, during the time that the subject was given a memorization task to perform. So that's what they did to these subjects. The normal brain on the left has a brighter image because it is using more glucose than the ADHD brain on the right. For the pro-Ritalin advocates, this difference in activity levels is evidence of a disease that needs medication. Right, They say, look at this, the non ADHD adult brain is much more active and that's good. And they're using up more energy and, you know, versus the ADHD adult brain. Well, here's what Jonathan Leo points out, but there was no difference in performance on the task between the ADHD and control brains, meaning both people, both brains, both humans that did the same task performed just as well during that task, doing that task. So he says the fact that the ADHD brain could do the same task with less energy could actually be an evolutionary advantage. Also, while there was an 8% difference between the ADHD brain and the normal brain, they also found that there's a 6%, which is almost 8% difference between the brains of normal females and normal males. So they're saying because there was just a small, tiny bit of difference, 2% more, right, than between males and females, and you're saying the 8% difference between the ADHD brain and normal brain is enough to say that it's a disorder, but the kicker, and I'm sure you've already picked this up, was to say, look, both people did the same task, performed the same. One was using more energy. Their glucose level is higher, the non-ADHD adult. Whereas the ADHD adult used less glucose, less energy in the brain. That's what the brain scan says. Now, when we look at that, like he's saying, doesn't it actually make sense? Isn't it actually more beneficiary to do the same task with using less energy, less glucose? So we have it backwards. We're looking at scans saying... The more glucose, the more energy in the brain, the better because it looks more lively, more bright, more, more colorful. But Jonathan Lee was pointing out that no, actually it's the opposite. If you could use less energy, less glucose in the brain to do a task, the same task that the non ADHD person can do, I think you're ahead. I think it's an advantage. So that's just one detail here about brain scans. So before you buy this brain scan nonsense read up, read up on it. Be critical. Don't just read Daniel Amon's book or go to, um, you know, our friend here was just reading, go to, uh, uh work, right? We got to dig deeper. We got to dig way deeper. You know, me digging deeper. So let's continue. In the past 10 years, while scientists have made very little progress in understanding ADHD, their partners down the hall in the marketing department have been extremely successful. The ADHD marketing forces have taken the decision to medicate children out of the ethical arena and reshaped the decision to medicate based on three flawed beliefs. One diagnosis equals disease. Two, ADHD is due to a biology and not the environment. And three, a disease can be treated with a pill. So those are the flawed beliefs one. Does diagnosis equal disease? Every human trait falls into a range of values. Some people are tall, some short, some are dark-skinned, some are light-skinned, some are outgoing, some are shy. With height, for example, if we measure the general population, we see a bell-shaped curve with a very tall and very short at either end of the spectrum. Regardless of a person's height or what factors cause a person to be tall or short, we do not label the people in the upper 10% as diseased. We recognize these people are merely being at the upper end of normal biological variability. They don't have faulty genes, just different genes. The ADHD experts have convinced the American public that the description of a personality trait is actually a disease. This is perhaps the biggest flaw and mistake of the ADHD proponents. They do not understand normal human variation. Where do you draw the line on the scale of children's activity level that demarcates normal children from ADHD children? Even the ADHD experts cannot agree. Some estimate, and you've seen this before when I read from our deck, some estimate that from 3 to 4% of American children have ADHD, while others go as high as 10, 17, or even 20%. Since there is no diagnostic test to determine if a child has this condition, such percentages are arbitrary. Dr. Lawrence Diller addresses the problems of diagnosis in a book chapter titled Attention Deficit Disorder in the Eye of the Beholder. Dr. Diller points out that if we adhere to Dr. Joseph Biederman's estimates that 10% of American children have ADHD, and that we take into account that it is four to five times more common in males than females, then approximately one out of every six boys between the ages of five and 12 years old would be diagnosed with ADHD. The problem is that in one school, family or doctor's office, these children would have a disease, but in another school, family or doctor's office, these children would not have a disease. Of all the variables that go into making a diagnosis of ADHD, science is the least important. It should strike the skeptical reader as odd that 5-10% to of American children have ADHD, whereas in England, only 0.03% of their children have the disease. This discrepancy highlights the shortcomings of the science of ADHD. Even if scientists are successful in developing a diagnostic test that shows 10% of the children in this country have a different biochemical makeup or different activity levels in the brain, or even a genetic difference, how do we as a society respond to this? Do we say that they have a disease or do we change the environment? ADHD proponents opt for the former and prescribe Ritalin as a treatment. Number two, genes or environment. In the past decade, research on ADHD has leaned towards a possible genetic component. One hears in the media talk of finding the gene for ADHD. This is the grand oversimplification of the interplay between genes and the environment, but administrating mind-altering drugs to children is easier to rationalize if the pill is nothing more than a way to correct a neurotransmitter deficit caused by faulty genes. In Dr. Alan Zemetkin's paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association, for example, he states, is there a particular gene linked to the disorder? Question mark. To even seriously consider that ADHD is due to a single gene goes against everything that science knows about genes and behavior. As Caltech gen- geneticist Seymour Benzer has shown with fruit flies, even a behavior as simply as moving towards a light involves hundreds of genes. A child's brain is enormously more complicated than the brain of a fruit fly, so to postulate that the ability to sit still in a classroom is due to a single gene or even a small cohort of genes seems preposterous. If ADHD is genetic, then it must have something to do with the Y chromosome because it's much more prevalent in boys than girls. Also, if ADHD is genetically caused, why is it so much more common in this country? And why does ADHD vary among states and local districts? In one school district in Virginia, for example, 20% of the children are diagnosed with ADHD. Is this due to a overabundance of ADHD genes in Virginia or overzealous school psychiatrists? Hmm. Despite such speculations, at this point, the only way to diagnose ADHD is by examining the relationship of a child to his environment. A physician does not discover ADHD at an annual checkup. It is the teacher observing the child in the school environment who makes the initial diagnosis. The parent and child then go to a specialist, but in the office, the child might even seem normal. So the expert then relies on the testimony of the teachers and parents. They then go through a checklist to determine if medication is appropriate. Given the level of subjective evaluation involved in such a checklist, it is not unusual for parents to walk out of the office with a prescription for Ritalin. Number three, from diagnosis to medication. Whether ADHD has a predominantly genetic or environmental cause, intervention through drugs is ethically problematic. Even the proponents of Ritalin, for example, acknowledge that the drug is an easy substitute for good parenting and good schools. Consider the following statement in the New England Journal of Medicine in an article titled Treatment of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder by Judith Rappaport. Training and supporting parents and teachers in techniques of contingency reinforcement has substantial beneficial effects on disruptive behavior. The value of these strategies is limited because they are labor intensive and therefore expensive and they're effective only at the time they're administered and cannot be generalized to non-targeted behavior or across settings and are dependent on the compliance and motivation of teachers and parents. Here, Rappaport is acknowledging that the environment matters, that good parenting does have an effect on behavior, and that teachers and parents can improve their teaching and parenting skills. The problem is time, effort, and money. Ritalin is quick, easy, and cheap. But as Rappaport notes, behavior management combined with methylphenidate Ritalin is substantially more effective than behavior management alone, but usually no more effective than methylphenidate alone. However, behavior management implemented in a highly structured setting may permit the use of a lower dose of methylphenidate. In other words, there is an inverse relationship between a highly structured environment and the dose of Ritalin or medication. Perhaps the national push to reduce class size will also result in a reduction of the number of children on Ritalin. The difference between good science and bad science does not depend on where the grants come from, but funding certainly should be taken into account. Dr. Rappaport's article was mentioned in an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine as one of 19 articles that should not have been published because it violated the journal's conflict of interest policy. One of the authors of the article received a grant from Celgene, a company that is developing a drug to treat ADHD. By the way, this sort of conflict of interest is very common among the pro-meds, pro-label, pro-disorder side. And uh, we're going to explore that as well with our guest, Dr. Ferrone, because he also has gotten thousands and thousands of dollars from pharmaceutical companies. And we're going to just have an honest discussion with him around that to see if that's not a conflict of interest and what he thinks of that, right? But that's in February. Anyway, let's continue. Who cares about science? When you talk to the parents of children taking Ritalin, they typically rave about the success of the drug. To put it simply, this stuff works. Who cares about all the scientific arguments concerning etiology, neurochemistry, and the pharmacological mechanism of treatment? If school performance is enhanced, who cares about science? Of course, since amphetamines were first discovered, it has been known that they increase performance. The marketing of Ritalin has made it hard for physicians who do not believe in it to withhold prescriptions. What is a doctor's response to a parent who says, my little boy's a monster without his Ritalin. We've tried everything and nothing works. Our lives are in complete disarray. He's about to get kicked out of school. I can't afford private tutors and homeschooling. Our family life is in turmoil. But when we put him on Ritalin, I'm telling you, it is a miracle. He calms down. He does well in school and our home life is blissful. If you don't believe in Ritalin, show me what I can do to replace Ritalin and still have a relatively normal life. This is a very real cry of anguish and a sympathetic doctor is going to want to assist the family, but a concerned and knowledgeable doctor also knows that one, parents have faced this dilemma for years, two, a Ritalin, sorry, a Ritalin band-aid would help only in the short run. Three, it would be more appropriate to recommend a family counselor for the long run, four. In the world of managed care, a pill is easier and cheaper. And five, if the parents don't get a prescription here, they will get it someplace else. The fact that Ritalin is a uniquely American response to this dilemma raises several questions about the direction our society is going. It is very hard for an individual doctor who does not believe in medicating children to go against the grain. What needs to happen is that the American medical community needs to address a tough question. Are we treating a disease or are we handing out a performance enhancing pill to put a temporary patch over other problems in our society? If we are just handing out a temporary patch, then let's call it that and not a neurobiological deficit. This is especially problematic because we do not know the long-term effects of the drug. In her interview article in 1999, Judith Rapaport says, important questions regarding the occur- occur- occurrence, <laughs> important questions regarding the occurrence of ticks, drug doses, and the effects of long-term therapy remain unanswered. Again, Rapaport is considered one of the ADHD experts the top, and she said this only one year ago, this is in 1999. There's also the dilemma for parents who do not want their children labeled with ADHD, yet are under pressure from the school district to have their children evaluated. No one disagrees that a child on Ritalin is easier to control. This is about the only fact that the ADHD scientists have proved. However, there are other ways to make it easier for teachers to control children. The most obvious being fewer children in the classroom. For instance, Dr. Howard Gardner believes that schools today are too dependent on numbers and words and need to spend more time on the arts, music, and physical education. Multiple intelligences is one answer to the ADHD dilemma. These kids are smart and creative in their own ways, and those talents should be exploited, not drugged. One of the many alternative views to medication is summed up by John Holt, We consider it a disease because it makes it difficult to run our schools as we do, like maximum security prisons, for the comfort and convenience of the teachers and administrators who work in them. Given the fact that some children are more energetic and active than others, might it not be easier, more healthy and more humane to deal with this fact by giving them more time and scope to make use of and work off their energy? Everyone is taken care of, except of course the child himself who wears a label which to him reads clearly enough, freak, and who is denied from those closest to him, however much sympathy he may get, what he and all children most need, respect, faith, hope, and trust. Most readers of Skeptic, this magazine, are probably familiar with Dr. Dean Edel, who openly shares the fact that he had ADHD as a child. I had an attention disorder as a kid and consider myself to be a very successful person. It wasn't easy, but when I needed to go back to medical school, I understood that I needed to buckle down and learn the material. Because of my situation, I have led a very creative life and have found it to be very valuable, he continues. We just can't drug all the kids who won't fit into the mold. Our culture needs people who think and act differently and there is nothing more frightening to me than looking into a classroom in America where every little kid is the same, all paying attention, all doing their homework and marching to the same drummer. What would have happened to the voice of science and reason in medicine if he had been medicated as a child? This is referring to Dr. Dean Adele. If the medical community is not treating a disease, but handing out a performance-enhancing drug, then if anything, Ritalin is under-prescribed, because the drug will help almost anyone. College students, for example, have discovered that Ritalin will give them extra focus. Can we fault these students when they are seeking to improve their performance and then turn around and use the performance-enhancing aspect of the drug as the major reason for prescribing it? Clearly, we have a disconnect between the science of ADHD and the art of behavioral modification with drugs. So, let's see. Berkeley or Jill? As we approach the next presidential election, one of the issues facing our country is how to increase the number of children who go into higher education and decrease the number of children in our jails. The Democrats have one agenda and the Republicans have another, but according to Ritalin proponents, the cure for society's problems can be found in a pill. ADHD expert Dr. James Swanson summed it up this way. Treatment can mean the difference between a kid ending up at Berkeley or ending up in prison. This is the disorder where we can really make a difference. Of course, the world would be a better place if more adolescents went to Berkeley instead of prison, but to suggest that the answer to our country's sociological problems is as easy as taking more drugs is simplistic. It shows a lack of understanding, or at least blissful ignorance of politics, race, relations, sociology, ethics, and child development in this country. America has one of the highest incarceration rates on the planet. Marginal race relations, a breakdown of the family, problems with schools, and the list goes on and on. Is the answer to our social problems as easy as taking a pill? While believing that more Ritalin will keep kids out of jail might not show a very good understanding of science and sociology, it does show a good understanding of parental vulnerability. Everyone wants the best for their kids. But if there is ever a time for healthy skepticism, it is when someone claims that they have a magic pill that is the difference between failure and success. We'll let that one sink in. Disease or growing pains. Since there are no diagnostic tests to determine who has ADHD, the diagnosis, sorry, the diagnosis is based on observing the child in the classroom. How do doctors tell the difference between normal childhood behavior, growing pains, and actual ADHD? From what I have presented, Thus far, it should not surprise you to learn that there is no rigorous scientific basis for ADHD diagnosis. The following case studies are from an educators in service training program on ADHD presented in a seminar format to teachers and other educators. The program includes overheads and pamphlets for the presenter to use for the presentation. The pamphlet is titled A Comprehensive Presentation to Inform Educators About Attention Deficit Disorder and is produced by, guess who? Chad. Keep in mind, this is a pamphlet that is distributed to teachers all over the country. Chad is a strong proponent of the view that ADHD is a neurobiological disease. Case one, John. A third grade student is often non-compliant and does not begin tasks when asked. During a two-week observation period, he exhibited the following behaviors on a routine basis. John sharpened his pencil three times before sitting down and working. John fell out of his chair when given an assignment with 50 problems. He pretended to be a clown. The class laughed. After leaving his reading group on the way back to his seat for independent work, John tripped Sally. He was sent to the corner of the room. Case two. Sally's a middle school or senior high student a senior high student who never gets from class A to class B on time often she doesn't have the materials necessary for the next class her tardiness interferes with the class routine sally often misses class directions because she's busy trying to make up for lost time the class has already started working while she's looking for yesterday's homework which she has left in the locker In defense of Chad, these two case studies are presented in conjunction with behavioral management techniques, which are actually very appropriate. Medication is not at first discussed, but it is clear in Chad's view that these two children have a neurobiological deficit. The overall theme of Chad's presentation is that these children have a disease and later in the presentation, the wonders of medication are presented. Medications can have strong positive effect for a high percentage, 70% or more of children with ADHD. Is little John a diseased child or is he the class clown? Is little Sally sick? Or is she just at one end of a spectrum of behavioral variability? Do these kids need medication or social structure and intellectual stimuli? Of course, there is in the literature, no mention of PET scans, blood work, or any other diagnostic test on John and Sally, just behavioral observations. So what it comes down to is this, should these children be medicated to control their behavior? Since scientific evidence is lacking, this is a practical and ethical question. More and more physicians and scientists have publicly questioned whether the Ritalin proponents have misused science and overlooked ethics in the marketing of ADHD. It is time for the bioethical departments of medical schools to participate in this debate. So far, the idea of normalizing children with medication has eluded their radar. The pro-Ritalin advocates are considering gene manipulation in the womb for children who fall in the upper 10% of activity levels, yet the bioethicists seem more concerned with the ethics of genetically altering tomatoes and fruit flies. They ignore this problem at their peril. We can only hope that the groundswell for a more rational view of childhood will gain ascendancy before the technology of genetically altering John, Sally, and 10% of the next generation is available. The Future for Children with ADHD It will be interesting to see what happens in the next millennium if we follow the Ritalin movement's philosophy and its view of child development. Continuing the diabetes analogy, currently diabetics need to take a drug but in the future these patients will probably be treated with gene therapy. By altering diabetics' genetic makeup, they will be disease-free and never need to take medication again. If we believe that ADHD is a disease like diabetes... What will we do with the 5 to 10% of children in this country who have been diagnosed with ADHD? If one agrees with the Ritalin proponents, the gene therapy for large a large portion of the children in this country would be a viable option. Consider Alan Zametkin's closing remark in his previously mentioned article in a discussion on the future of ADHD research. Can pharmacological or gene manipulations lead to a cure? contemplating gene therapy for children by people who cannot agree on how many children have the disease is alarming. Nobel laureate, Sir Peter Medawar addresses the question of genetic engineering for humans. He says the moral political answer is that no such regimen of genetic improvement could be practiced within the framework of a society that respects the rights of individuals. He also notes, it is the great glory as it is also the great threat of science that everything which is in principle possible can be done if the intention to do, to do it is sufficiently resolute. Scientists may exult in the glory, but in the middle of the 20th century, the reaction of ordinary people is more often to cower at the threat. Even if science does show a mechanistic or a biological basis for this variable personality trait as a society, we still face an important value judgment. If our schools are likely pegboards designed for round holes and 10% of the pegs are square, then we have two choices. Either we must change the pegboard, the environment, which requires time and money to accommodate more of the pegs. Or we can chisel away at the 10% of square pegs, children with problems sitting still, so that they fit into the round holes. In the past several years, pro Ritalin advocates have had nothing but disregard at best and contempt at worst for anybody who is skeptical or concerned about the rising use of Ritalin in this country. In nineteen ninety six, doctor Lawrence Stone, the head of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, said the media in general tend to take the particular issues of drugs and also ADHD out of the domain of science and clinical judgment where it really belongs. Judith Rappaport stated, most of the media coverage on Ritalin has been overblown. Since these statements, the use of Ritalin has been documented to exceed most people's fears or expectations. The Journal of American Medical Association recently confirmed that Ritalin use in this country has skyrocketed, about 12 out of 1,000 preschoolers in one Midwestern population. I would expect that the pro-Ritalin advocates would say that this is a step forward, After all, they have been saying for several years that 10% of our children have a neurobiological disease. I think this is a step backward and that our expectations of childhood have come distorted, have become distorted. I also think the majority of Americans, including many scientists are seeing that in retrospect, the media coverage has not been overblown, but that the science has been overblown for a drug addict. The first step on the road to recovery is to admit to having a drug problem. For our country, the first step on the road to recovery would be for the national institutes of health to acknowledge the reality of the current situation in this country. We have a drug problem. If we don't face the reality, let me say that again. If we don't face the reality, do not be surprised if 10 years from now, even more of our children are taking Ritalin. Well, thank you, Jonathan Leah, for this beautiful article. And I'm here to say that 10 years from now, meaning from 2020, you know, that was 2010. We're now at 2021 and yes, more children are taking Ritalin or Ritalin like drugs. Many, many, many more. That was a long article. I acknowledged that. I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of information in there. There was just so much meat in this article. I didn't want to step over it. And that was an article in The Skeptic in 2000 by Jonathan Leo. And I'm going to see if I can uh, find a link to this PDF and have it in the show notes for you as well. Again, thank you for listening. This was good science or good marketing. And we really, really have to ask the question again. How come our scientists, our top experts on both sides, have not yet come together to really maturely, respectfully debate both, you know, the, the science around ADHD, both sides presenting their best studies and their best arguments. That would be an event I would attend. I would watch every moment of it. And that's what's needed, not just around ADHD. That's what's needed around COVID. That's what's needed around any big issue that has clearly, usually more than two sides, but mainly two sides. And one accuses the other of, you know, being wrong or immature or not educated or not having the right science, I got it, it's okay to make those statements, but let's get together in one room and instead of throwing consensus and rebuttals back and forth at each other, like a snowball fight, let's get in the room. Let's take off the gloves. Let's sit down. Let's really look at it, but first let's set the intention that any outcome Any positive intended outcome of such a debate is all within the intention of making a difference for our children, for our children's future. The adults of the future are today's children. And if we're really committed to their mental health, then we got to stop this back and forth, my scientist is bigger than your scientist and my study is better than your study kind of immature behavior and sit down and discuss it like mature experts, mature adults. Anyway, thank you for listening to our podcast, to this episode, be well, and until next time.